Rabies is the archetypal zoonotic disease, and only by eradication by vaccination in animals will we eliminate infections in people. I'm Navjot Lada, Clinical Reviews Editor for the BMJ, and in two podcasts linked to our latest review, The Prevention and Management of Rabies, we'll be discussing how we can get there. In this podcast, I'm joined by Sarah Cleveland, Professor of Comparative Epidemiology at the University of Glasgow, about controlling the disease in animals. To find out about the clinical presentation, listen to the accompanying podcast with Natasha Crowcroft, Chief of Infectious Disease at Public Health Ontario. But first, to the management in animals. Sarah, we've heard from Natasha Crowcroft, who is one of the authors of the clinical review that we've um, just published on the prevention and management of rabies. Um, And she mentioned the importance of an integrated approach between different sectors in preventing rabies and that if rabies can be controlled and eliminated in dogs, that will have direct knock-on effects in humans and potentially eliminate rabies infection in humans as well. Um, You've been involved with something called One Health, which uses this approach, and you've written about it in one of our sister journals, Veterinary Record. Um, Can you tell us a bit about One Health and its approach? So I think One Health really describes a concept that is about uh, linking across disciplines, um, uh, particularly human and veterinary medicine, um, but also bringing in other disciplines into tackling complex health problems in a complex world, really. Um, so it, at its core, it involves um, interdisciplinary, uh, transdisciplinary approaches that will need med- uh, medical scientists, veterinarians, ecologists, economists, social scientists, all to bring their expertise to looking at these problems. Um, and it's really about recon- recognizing the interdependencies between human and animal health, as well as their links with the environment. And, and moving from a very sort of specialised, rather reductionistic approach that we sometimes adopt in biomedical science towards a sort of more holistic, integrated type of thinking. Okay, brilliant. And how how have you gone about trying to tackle then as a, as a sort of group, um, working kind of across different um, sectors, um, tackling rabies? Well, rabies really is an excellent exemplar of One Health and the um, advantages of adopting this approach because rabies can affect so many um, species. It actually can cause disease in all mammalian hosts. And at the outset, I actually became interested in rabies because of its impact on wildlife and as a threat to an endangered species in the Serengeti National Park. Um, But of course, it has implications most profoundly from the human health perspective Um, But it's a disease that at its source uh, involves domestic dogs as reservoirs. And so we're almost required to bridge across different disciplines, different host populations to tackle it effectively. Um, Another key area for rabies um, uh, control is addressing the economics um, of the uh, control options that we might be considering, Um, as well as looking at integrated measures of disease burden, Often when we're trying to prioritise interventions in the public health context, we use standardised measures such as the disability-adjusted life year. And this captures the impact on the human population. But for rabies, as well as many other zoonotic infections, they do have multiple impacts. They can affect human health actually also through impacts on livestock productivity, for example, um, and the costs associated with the disease in the animal population uh, needs to be 
uh, incorporated into these measures of disease burden. Right, right. So that's another example of how you have to kind of think more broadly about the effects. You know, it's not just people can be very inclined to just think about the effects in a sort of single domain. But rabies is, as you say, a great example of things that affect different um, different sectors, different areas. Um, and can you tell us about what this approach has achieved? I mean, has it been put in practice in anywhere? Our work on the reservoir dynamics of rabies um, has indicated that throughout Africa and Asia, it's really domestic dogs that are driving the problem. And this immediately points us to interventions in the domestic dog population. Um, but the benefits to intervening in the dog population are, of course, you reduce infection in the animal population, but you reduce transmission to people. Uh, fewer people are exposed to rabies. Fewer people will die from rabies. But really importantly for rabies, um, fewer people will need the very costly post-exposure prophylaxis that is required if someone is bitten by a rabid dog. And so we see that the intervention in the animal population um, has both direct human health impacts, but also very important economic impacts for the public health sector. Uh, but what World Health encourages us to do is to try and bring those two domains together and allow us to adopt an integrated approach that will look at both the costs and the benefits uh, across both sectors rather than in separate um, domains. It seems that a big determinant of the attention that's given to rabies is who it affects. Um, as you say in your paper, because the communities most affected are marginalised and poor, the disease remains relatively invisible. Um, how much of a challenge has this been, um, you know, when you're trying to introduce these interventions? And, you know, is it feasible um, as an approach in kind of lower income countries that tend to be most affected by rabies? Well, this... Uh, invisibility was really the starting point for some of our research. We became aware very quickly uh, working in the field that the official reports of rabies were uh, a very major underestimate of the true burden. This is true for many diseases, and many neglected tropical diseases particularly. Um, in the official surveys of the World Health Organization, um, for example, Africa would typically, across the whole of the sub-Saharan African region, be typically reporting 200 to 300 human deaths. And so uh, generating a more realistic estimate of disease burden was really important for us because at that point it was very difficult to engage with public health sectors, even with the veterinary sectors, to uh, advocate for interventions on the basis of that kind of disease burden, which is relatively insignificant. So we use a different methodology, which as a starting point was actually how many people are bitten by rabid dogs, uh, which turns out to be extremely high. And then the availability for those people of post-exposure prophylaxis, which in many areas is quite low. Um, and following that, we came up with estimates of rabies deaths uh, in Africa that were much higher than reported uh, at least 100 times in Africa. Um, and the most recent burden estimates in Africa come up with uh, figures of around about 38,000 deaths per year, which is definitely not insubstantial. In and so being able to produce uh, these kind of figures um, through rigorous peer review assessment uh, that are now being taken up by organizations such as the World Health Organization um, and the International Animal Health Organization 
um, are extremely important in terms of advocacy and bringing rabies onto the international agenda. You asked about the feasibility of trying to tackle this in low-income countries. And to summarize a, a lot of research by uh, our, myself and colleagues over the years, we, we think that rabies uh, is certainly, canine rabies elimination is certainly a feasible prospect. That's both on an epidemiological basis, um, on a practical logistic feasibility basis, and also on a cost-effectiveness basis. Um, much of our work has overcome some very common misperceptions about dog populations. Uh, many people talk about stray dogs and there being too many stray dogs as a key problem for implementing these interventions. And what we found is that although many dogs are roaming freely and unsupervised, the vast majority are own dogs. And critically, enough of these dogs can be accessed for vaccination campaigns. We only need to reach about 70% of the population to effectively control the disease. And we have yet to find any communities anywhere in the world where dog rabies is endemic, where we can't reach this population coverage level. So we are genuinely optimistic. And the evidence base that we've been building up has really been influential in changing international perceptions and policy towards rabies. And rabies is now identified on the WHO neglected tropical disease cluster. And I hope that will really provide momentum as we go forward. Well, that's great. It sounds like you've um, really helped bring this bring this up in the um, sort of global agenda. Um, in terms of cost, it seems that one of the barriers until now has been that the benefits of canine rabies control are mostly for the human health sector, whereas often it's the veterinary sector that incurs the cost of um, vaccination. How have you managed to work around this? Has that been part of part of your approach, is working out how the cost is sort of picked up? I think it's a really critical issue, and we are working uh, to try and look at solutions and mechan financing mechanisms that will address this. Um, there are some countries, for example, in Kenya, they have established a zoonotic disease unit, which is, uh, comprises representatives from different ministries, and they're charged with responsibility for, for rabies control, uh, for example, with budgets that can be allocated uh, for uh, zoonotic diseases. In other countries, the budgets are still very separated, and that is a, an extremely difficult situation um, because the budgets for veterinary services um, are often quite limited. And to reach that initial um, high level of vaccination coverage that you need to bring the cost the human health sector through post-exposure prophylaxis costs coming down it is quite high. So it needs an initial sort of investment uh, and then the benefits will accrue over time. So the timing of this uh, raises complications. Um, can you tell us about how some of these interventions have been funded? Yes, there have been several really important um, pilot studies that have not only generated data about the feasibility of canine rabies elimination in a, a number of different settings across the world, but also have generated the confidence and the expertise amongst local practitioners um, about how to go about things. Um, really important projects have been uh, funded through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in um, South Africa, Tanzania and the Philippines. Um, and these have 
demonstrated, for example, in KwaZulu-Natal that uh, canine rabies um, has uh, resulted in the elimination of human rabies. Um, and also they're on the brink of actually eliminating canine rabies itself over a, a fairly short space of time. And in the Philippines, for example, it has been a really important project in bringing together the ministries of health and the ministries of agriculture into much more coordinated programs. Just to finish up, I mean, you you said that canine elimination of canine rabies is a realistic and feasible goal. And I think you've touched on this in your um, last answer. But what do you think is what do you think are the kind of practical steps that are needed to achieve elimination of uh, canine rabies? I think one of the key issues is coordination. And there's lots of efforts now to bring different rabies communities uh, together to coordinate large-scale strategies. We've seen from the fox rabies elimination programs in Europe that we really need to implement campaigns on a large scale. Um, We know that if you have too fragmented a program, you have patches in vaccination coverage, it can really extend uh, your time to elimination, which can obviously increase costs dramatically. And it can also... uh, result in sort of demotivation of individuals and agencies involved in these campaigns. So we have to go for large-scale, comprehensive, complete coverage of domestic dogs. So coordination, both sort of transboundary coordination, but coordination of different groups who are in different sites across the world doing very effective smaller-scale campaigns. I think we need to use those focal areas of activity and, and critically, the, the champions of rabies, the people who are really passionate and determined to take this forward, to make a difference in their community, to build out from those activities into these larger scale campaigns that can cover big enough areas to really start to make an impact and progress towards elimination as opposed to just uh, sort of localized rabies control. So coordination, building around champions um, and uh, having high level political support for these programs so that uh, uh, we can uh, ensure that there's uh, effective management. Great, thank you. Um, Professor Sarah Cleveland, thanks so much for joining us and um, good luck with your ongoing efforts and achievements. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to Sarah Cleveland discuss rabies and animals. To find out more about the disease in humans, listen to the accompanying podcast with Natasha Crowcroft. To find it, visit the article The Prevention and Management of Rabies, now available on thebmj.com.